0: Last night, I'll tell you, we had a great move of God last night, a great move of God. And I know that God is going to do some more powerful things right here today before we leave. But I want to ask a series of questions. Why? Why do you love Jesus? just want you to think about that. Why do you love Jesus? Why do you believe what you do? Why do you live the way you do? What is your hope for the future, and why does it matter? Has anyone ever been asked at least one of these questions in your walk with God? Anyone? Why do you believe what you do? Why do you live that way? Why do you do that? Why? why, What hope do you have? Why is it important? Well, how do you answer questions like that? In your Bible of more than 1,000 pages, what matters in that book? I understand. Oh, all of it matters. Yeah, but, but where do you start? When someone asks you a question, do you go to the Old Testament? Do you go to the New Testament? Do you talk about grace? Do you talk about baptism? Do you talk about John three sixteen, for God so loved the world? Do you talk about Acts two thirty eight, repent and be baptized, every one of you? Where, what really matters when you have just a moment with someone and they say, what do, you, what do you believe? Why do you do that? What's all this Pentecost stuff? Why do you go to church? What's your story? Why does it matter? Where do you go? Sure, it all matters, but where do you start? Well, I would like to follow the Apostle Paul's example when he wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15.3. He said, I passed on what was most important. If if Paul is saying, he's saying, I'm going to talk to you about what the most important thing is. So for me, I'm going, okay, well, Paul just said, Most important, he says, Christ died for our sins. But notice he said, and this is what's been passed on to me. Isn't that the way the New Testament church is built? Something that's been passed on to you needs to be passed on to someone else. Because as powerful as God is, we were left here. He filled us with the Spirit, said, I've empowered you to be witnesses. If we choose not to pass that on, we say, it stops with me then the church dies. I mean, that's why he left us here. As powerful of a message as this is, if we do not pass on what's been passed on to us, the message ceases to exist. And so it says, I'm going to pass on what, I, what someone passed on to me. And here's the most important thing. Christ died for our sins Paul determined early that the cross was going to be the focal point of his ministry and his messages. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was the crux of his message. Nothing matters more. Nothing matters more than the fact that God took on flesh, dwelt among us, died on a cross, was buried in a grave, and then rose again. Yeah, but the baptism is so important and our sins are washed away. We don't have baptism where truly sins are washed away and restoration and new life and renewal and regeneration. That doesn't happen if Jesus Christ doesn't die on the cross. Yeah, but the infilling of the spirit, how powerful. Yeah, but he says, uh, he comes and then he says, I'm going to go away so that I can send my spirit. Right? We don't, we don't have these things. We don't have new life and new hope. All our sinners and we are come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin are death without Jesus Christ dying on the cross, paying the price for our sin. All the other things that do matter don't matter without the cross. Every other thing revolves around that. And this is going to be a two-week series. And next week, we're going to culminate. It's all going to come together as we, as we take communion at the end of the message with us and with our families. And so, this two-week series is simply entitled, Words of the Cross. Words of the Cross. See, what a piece of history the cross has become. History has been, history has both idolized and despised the cross. People have burned it, it's been gold-plated, they've worn it, they've trashed it, they've even prayed to it. History's done everything to the cross, but ignore it. That's because the cross can't be ignored. Today, we could talk about the theology of the cross and what it means. We could talk about the blood of, of Christ and talk specifically about the blood. But, but I think that I just want to look for the next two weeks. I can't even cover all of them. Time won't permit me. But some of the words of the cross, the words that Jesus spoke on the cross shed a lot of light, not only in his plan for, for his, in, in himself and what he wanted to do globally and worldwide, but also for us. Luke 23, says, when they came to the place, a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right, one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers, they gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then the crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed, and he saved others, they said. Let, let him save himself if he's really God, the Messiah, the chosen one. And then the soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called to him and said, yeah, if you're the king, save yourself. Save yourself. A a sign was uh, fastened above him with the words, this is the king of the Jews. That wasn't meant to be complimentary. You see, you think about the dialogue that took place that day. It was all bitter. It was all bitter. It was all filled with hate and spite. The religious leaders were saying, He saved, he saved others. He can't save himself. And then the soldiers were challenging, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Words were filled with sarcasm, hateful, spiteful, without reverence at all. Wasn't it enough that Jesus was hung naked, ashamed, hung on a cross, nails driven through his hands and his feet, beat to beat to a bloody pulp to the fact that skin was hanging off his back. Out of nine tails would wrap around his side and rip skin and expose his ribs and push a thorn, a, a crown of thorns down his head. Not, not like little staples. I'm talking about things that would be so deep that it would actually penetrate through the skull that when they would hit him or move, that one of those thorns would actually pierce his brain. Wasn't that enough? His flogging, his beating, all that. Hate causes people to do crazy things. Hate takes people places that they never thought they would go. You read stories about murderers and criminals today, and you go, my Lord, what kind of warped mind does it? In most cases, unless there's some kind of a psychological mental disease or illness, most people, there's, there's something, that, there's some type of conditioning that took place or didn't take place for someone to get that filled with hate. And criminal two looks at Jesus and throws his punch. Hey, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and save us too. All the words that day were meant to wound. They didn't want to just, the devil's goal here is not just to kill your body and send you to hell. They could have just killed Jesus, one, two, three. But the Romans, they said, no, we're going to put criminals on the, on the highway. We're going to hang naked bodies from a cross. It was the most vile and, and uh, just terrible, embarrassing way to die for the most vile criminals. And they'd hang them on the side of the road. And Jesus said, we're going to take extra. We're going we're to put extra into this guy because he had such a great following. So many people followed him. So many people looked up to him. He had done so much. He had built so much hope in the Jewish people. So for them, they're going to beat him to a bloody pulp where the Bible says he's not even recognizable as a human being. We're going to hang that bloody mess on the side of the street so when people walk by, we're not just killing him. We're killing their dream. We're killing whatever hope that they have. We're going to break their spirit because the enemy is not just interested in you messing up and going to hell. The enemy wants to make it. Where your hope, your spirit is crushed and your hope is broken, to where your kids now grow up in a home where the parents say, There's no use in going to church. There ain't nothing happens over there. All they do is this. And, and then generations can be formed because, because parents lost hope, because parents' spirits were crushed. It's not about killing Jesus by himself, it was about destroying the hope and the spirit of an entire nation. And the enemy still aims to do that. No doubt, you've had your share of words that wound. Has anyone ever said anything to you that crushed your spirit, broke your heart, really made you cry ever before anybody? Maybe you're still feeling it. Someone you love or respect slams you to the floor with a slip of a tongue or or a sly remark, and there you are. You're wounded. You're bleeding. Perhaps they intended to hurt you. Maybe it was just an accident, but honestly, it doesn't really matter, does it? You're still wounded. You're still hurting. There's still something that is causing agony and pain. Maybe your wound is an old one, things people said long ago, but you just can't seem to shake them. It still sticks with you. It reverberates and resonates in your brain as you hear their their words once again. And to this day, you've moved on, but the bruises still remain. Look what Jesus did in 1 Peter 2.23. It says, he did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right by his wounds you are healed, and I don't believe the wounds that you're healed are just physical. By his wounds, because Jesus didn't just take on a physical beating that day. He took on an emotional, a mental, a spiritual. Anything that you struggle with today, it's not just a physical healing. Emotional, mental, whatever it is, spiritual, whatever wounds that you are carrying, by his wounds, you can be healed of yours. And Jesus, he didn't retaliate. He didn't just say, just wait. <clears throat> if I had that much power and I was hanging on a cross and people started talking trash to me. <laughs> oh, yeah? Just wait three days. Watch, watch what I'm going to do to you, knucklehead. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, he didn't say, like, oh, <laughs> yeah? You wouldn't talk to me like that? Get up here in my face and say it to my face. Oh, he had the authority to call down angels. You better believe I would have called down more than one. I'm like, I'm going to take down the sin of the world right now. But watch this. Michael, Gabriel, get down here for a second. He just, he hung there. Certainly the dialogue that morning was so, it was so bitter. It was meant to destroy. But somehow Jesus hanging there says, Father, forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. How in the world does Jesus with a body racked with pain, eyes blinded with his own blood and and lungs just trying to gulp and gasp in air, how he could use some of that oxygen to begin to speak on behalf of the heartless thugs who just moments ago beat him, punched him, mocked him, and drove spikes through his hands and feet. How in the world could could he hang there and go, Father... Forgive them. If a person ever deserved a shot at revenge, it was Jesus. He didn't take it though. Instead, he died for their sins. And that's what the crazy part is to me. It's, 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 it's as these people were punching him and whipping him and mocking him and saying these things to him. And then hanging him naked and, 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 and gambling for the, his garments. As they were in the very process of that. As that was happening, Jesus Christ, at that moment, while they were still doing it, he was in the process of dying for their sins. While they were disrespecting him, hitting him, whipping him, and driving nails in his hands and feet. I can't wrap my brain around that. Because I'm not capable of that. I can be though when I'm filled with his spirit. But all of a sudden, my grudges seem insignificant. My wounds don't seem quite as severe. Even if I struggle with them, I can take them to a savior. Who made a decision. He made a decision. The same thing he's asking me to do. Because you see... I don't think I'd want to listen to preachers and teachers who say one thing and do another. Now, if you're here and you're saying, well, that's," I'm looking for a church where the preacher and the pastor is perfect, do me a favor and let me know when you find it, because I'll probably go with you, because we're not perfect. I'm certainly not perfect, Chances, but, but but here's what I aim to do, is when I get up to preach, Chances are God has almost always preached that to me before I will get up and share that with you. So he's already dealing with me on something, but that doesn't mean like now I have perfected the message that I'm about to share with you all today. Half the time I'm getting up speaking something that I'm in the middle of dealing with myself. And so we're all on this journey as we're going, God, I want to be close to you. God, I want to see. But, but see, imagine if Jesus says, oh, do good to those that despitefully use you. Bless them that persecute you. And then when the opportunity comes for him, he doesn't do so. Everything, you see, all these principles that Jesus taught in the Gospels, we see them all come to fruition when he's going through the, the experience of the cross. Those things that he's asking us to do that are so difficult to do, we see him start to do them. And his followers are looking on and they're watching his responses. And guess what? Then Nero starts blaming them and starts putting them to death. And then they were able to bless them that despitefully used them and persecuted them because they learned by example. But then that second part, first he asks for their forgiveness, but then he says... They don't know what they're doing. I might shed some light on why Jesus would not be able or would not be tempted to retaliate. It's almost like Jesus didn't consider them bloodthirsty murderers. It's almost like he considered them, dare I say, victims. Almost as though he saw them in their confusion rather than hatred. He saw them all as sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that what he said? And like so many times we read in the Gospels, he was moved with compassion. Do you want to know them all? you 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 say, oh, I want to be used by God. I want a ministry. God, I just want you to anoint me. The greatest way to be used by God is as you pursue him is to just have compassion on people. Because you can teach and preach and do all this stuff, but without a genuine compassion for a, a human being. This is what caused, you read through the Gospels, Jesus, and he walked and he saw the woman and he had compassion on her. He saw the children, he was moved with compassion. He saw the man laying on the ground, he, was, he stopped and had compassion on him. Go, go, go check it out sometime. All through the Gospels, everywhere he goes, the stops of Jesus, he had compassion. He saw them. It was moved with compassion. Saw her. It was moved with compassion. All the kids, they were moved with compassion. Everything was about compassion. And here he is hanging on the cross. And he's looking at murderers and thugs that did this to him. And somehow he has compassion on them. None of us. We'll be able to make disciples effectively until we're moved with compassion. Could it be that this is how he still has compassion on you and me today? When I let him down, when I disregard his word, when I slip up and do the same dumb thing again. Has anyone ever messed up and done the same thing more than once Thank you. Some of you don't have your hands raised. You, all, you, you need to preach next weekend because you guys got it down. But I think sometimes he just looks at us with compassion and goes, They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Paul candidly writes, check this out Romans 7. We've read this before, but he says, I don't really understand myself. Amen. For I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows I agree with the law and the law is good. And he says, so I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. Does this guy sound like a confused individual? But yet in all the writing of this confusion, if you fly through and you're like, what is this guy trying to say? But you know what's weird? Is at the heart of it, we all can understand really well what he's saying right here. Man, I want to do what's right and I am not doing it and I hate to do what's wrong but I am slipping and doing it and I'm just messed up. I don't understand myself. I think we can relate to that. He says in verse 20, but I, if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me. 21, I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. Well, Lord, if that's the Apostle Paul saying that, where does that leave me? I love God's law with all my heart. That's not the problem. But there's another power within me that's at war with my mind because that's where... Sin to battle is. This power makes me a slave to sin that's still in me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. I mean, if we end here in the letter to the Romans, I mean, the Roman church should be like. I mean, if I just got up and preached that message and said, I'm just lost. I don't understand myself. I keep messing up. I want to do what's right. I don't do what's right. I don't want to do what's wrong. I do what's wrong. I'm a miserable person. Walked out the door. I think everybody here would be like, well, what are we supposed to do? You're the preacher. You're supposed to have some things figured out. He says, who will free me from a life that's dominated by sin and death? I'm thankful that his message did not stop there because the next verse says, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul is sitting here painting an incredible picture of humanity where we're going man, I mess up and I make mistakes and I I sin and I hate when I sin, but then I end up going back to it and I just hate it. I'm miserable. I can't stand it. But I'll tell you, I don't have to live this life anymore because Jesus Christ died on a cross and because the blood that he shed, I can be free. I can walk as an overcomer. I don't have to live this miserable life anymore. Thank God. For the cross, because we don't have that hope without the cross. And so I just think sometimes Jesus goes, ah. "I just wonder if He does converse with the angels." We have record of it in the Bible. I just wonder if He's ever like, "The angels are like, do you see Gary?" Man, I thought, haven't you been working with that guy? And God just looks at the angels and says, yeah, Gary sometimes doesn't understand what he's doing. (laughs) But I haven't given up on him yet. You ever walk around and pray and say, God, please just don't give up on me. These heathen soldiers and priests weren't the only ones Jesus saw on his bloody view from the cross. He looks down, and he sees his mother. John 19, 25 says, standing near the cross is Jesus' mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. The disciple said, here's your mother. And from then on, the disciple took her into his home. You see, we're not talking about the Renaissance painting of a really milky white Jesus with long, pretty hair. And a little crown of thorns with three drops of blood driving down here. Avoiding coming and stripping off his chin. Talking about a man who was beat so bad even before. The cross was probably a relief compared to what he faced before the cross. To the point where you're going, is that a human being? The crown of thorns and the beating was so bad that he, hands were fastened to the cross. It's not like you would wipe your face. Blood was running so profusely that as he was hanging there, He probably would struggle just to open his eyes because his eyes were filled with blood. That even trying to look down and, is that my mom? Mother, behold your son. And instantly you feel emotion, especially if you're here and you have a mom that you love or you have kids. Because you imagine that moment. I'd say one of the most confusing and frightening things found in the Bible is in Matthew 19. Peter said to him, we've given up everything to follow you. What what will we get? Jesus replied, I assure you when the world's made new and the Son of Man sits upon the glorious throne, you've been my followers, you will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That sounds pretty awesome. And everyone who's given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. I can get behind the leaving of the land and the fields. <laughs> Doesn't that make sense? You know, like, well, yeah, you got it. God's calling you over here. You got to leave the land, leave the fields, walk away from the job and step into this area of faith. That makes sense. But the other part makes me cringe a little. What about leaving mom and dad, saying goodbye to brothers and sisters, placing a farewell kiss on sons and daughters? That one's tough. Why do I have to be willing to leave those I love? Does anything really get more sacrificial than that? Imagine how the cross looked that day for Jesus. Jesus. The bloody view of his mom standing there. But pause and let's try and think about what the cross looked for Mary. At this point, Mary is now older. The hair at her temples is gray. Wrinkles have replaced her youthful skin. Her hands are calloused. She's raised a house full of children. And now she's looking up at her tortured, bloodied firstborn son. One wonders what memories she conjures up as she witnesses the torture. Because you see, I've been to a number of funerals now. And sometimes you just need to shut up and listen to people talk. Because in time was a loss when someone's ready. Sometimes they're ready the day of the funeral. Sometimes it's weeks, months after. But often people will start to say, I just remember when. I just, I'll never forget. When we were little. Remember the, t- remember the time we went. Just people just start to share. Just wonder, you know, Scripture doesn't say all we can do is kind of hypothesize, but she's standing looking at her mutilated son just sitting there, bloody. I wonder if she was like, man, I remember when I was pregnant and we took that trip to Bethlehem. Lord, my back hurt so bad. Riding on that donkey. There weren't good shock absorbers on that thing. Did she think about the baby's bed that was made of cow hay? A home in Nazareth. Panic in Jerusalem, she think about how he was a little boy and went out and started carpentry lessons with Joseph. The first hammer she bought him. Dinner at table with family filled with laughter. Or did she still get nerves in the pit of her stomach when she said, "Man, I'll never forget the time I lost him as a twelve year old. And then that morning came when Jesus came in early from the shop. He had been working with his father, Joseph, and his eyes were more firm. His voice was a little more direct that day. He heard the news that his cousin, John, was preaching in the wilderness. Mary's son just took off his apron. dusted all the dust off. He hung it up. Mary looked at him and he said, Mom, it's time. They both knew at that moment that things would never be the same again. They took a secret. Mary knew her heart would be pierced because the angel told her it was going to happen. Jesus probably knew too. Mary learned that day what heartache feels like from saying goodbye. From then on, she would love her son from a distance. On the edge of a crowd, outside of a packed house, on the shore of a sea as her son stood on a boat. Maybe Mary was even present the day when Jesus spoke those words and said, Hey, anybody going to give up brothers and sisters and moms and dads? And You're going to receive a great gift. Mary wasn't the first one, though, to say goodbye to loved ones for the sake of the kingdom. Joseph was called to be an orphan in Egypt. Jonah was called to be a foreigner in Nineveh. Hannah sent her firstborn son to serve in the temple. And then would just come and see him each year, bring him a new coat. I read those stories and go, man. Daniel was sent to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Babylon. Nehemiah was sent from Susa to Jerusalem. Abraham was called to sacrifice his own son. Paul had to say goodbye to his heritage. Jacob kissed his mother goodbye, fled to his uncle's house, and she died and he never saw her again. The Bible's bound together with goodbye trails stained with farewell tears. In fact, it seems that goodbye is a word that's all too prevalent in a Christian's vocabulary. Brother and Sister Morgans left their family in Oklahoma to come and start this church in the 1970s. I still remember when I told my parents that Brother Morgan's was retiring. We didn't, we were born and I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I didn't know really Brother Morgan's, his family, but my wife and I, I'll never forget when I looked at my parents and said, it's time. And I took their brand new and only grandchild on both sides for her and my dad and for Arthur and Rachel. And my dad sat down at the kitchen table. He looked at me listened. I finished. And he pulled out his handkerchief and he started sobbing and crying in his handkerchief at the kitchen table. Happy that I was pursuing God's call. Devastated that the chapter of our family story was done. But how about global missionaries? At least my family could still drive nine hours and come see me. For many global missionaries, they have grandchildren that are being born right now in communist or Muslim countries. They aren't there for the birth. They're going to go years before they see their grandchildren. Sometimes they don't meet them until they're older. And they do all this to move the mission forward. And we're going to watch just a short promo video about this offering that churches take offerings. Yeah, no, this is more than just an offering. It's us saying, I want to be a part of moving that mission. Let's watch this. We are called to move the mission. It's got to move you. It's got to somehow get down into the emotions of your mind to reach your heart until it will cause you to weep for the souls of men and then i'd like to say to you tonight that we have the word of god on which we can stand to move this world need to get your mind on the things that God wants us to have, and that's to be renewed so that we can have a worldwide vision and realize the purpose of our existing is to get the whole gospel to the whole world. The need is to move the mission. Pentecostal church it's time to preach the word I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ I will cross any river I will climb any mountain I will pay any price I will bear any burden give me the hard road who will go all the list of the things that move the mission offering go toward. Next week we won't just take communion at the end of our family weekend but we'll be taking our annual move the mission offering before you just drop a $5 bill in. and Call it good. Remember the sacrifice of every global missionary. The, The move the mission offering goes to support. Think about the The airports, the luggage, the embraces, the taillights, the wave goodbye to grandma. Tell papa you'll see him next year. There's tight throats, misty eyes, hurting hearts, ticket counters, such as the life of ministry. I looked at our youth group yesterday and I said, We dream a ministry and we see youth congress with thousands of people in the lights and the awesome music and people jumping up and down and the preachers that are one of the best preachers in the world gets up and moves the crowd and everybody responds and it's just this exhilarating atmosphere. But we don't see the taillights. We don't see the dads at the kitchen table weeping because ministry is a sacrifice. What kind of God would ask people to go through such agony? Because when we dream of ministry, sometimes we dream of just the big things. And the things that we see. Kind of God would give your family give you families and then ask you to leave them. Kind of God would give you friends and then say goodbye. I'll tell you. A God who knows that the deepest love is built not on passion, but on a common mission and sacrifice. A God who called people into the mission of reaching a lost and dying world. A God who did it himself. As Jesus hung on the cross that day, he said, woman, behold thy son. John fastened his arm around Mary a little tighter, and Jesus was asking him to be the son that a mother needs, and in some ways that Jesus never was. Jesus looked at Mary, and it's amazing, the love and the bond. Because Jesus' first miracle was only done because his mama said, bring the wine, do whatever he tells you to do. And then one of the last things he speaks is even on dying on the cross, eyes filled with blood, beat up, hurting, agonizing, getting people throwing ridicules at him. And he somehow blinks through that blood and sees his mom. He says, hey, John, make sure you take care of her. And then he says, it's finished. And in those times when missionaries feel lonely, they can weep and pray to a God who fully understands their sacrifice, not only of trying to build a church, but of all the personal sacrifices that come along with responding to the call. And I talked to some people today because some of you are going to respond to this message by giving to move the mission. And you're going to to come and you're going to just get more serious about God. But there are some people either watching online or here today, just like there were yesterday, that God is starting to plant something in your heart. And he's starting to call you and say, yeah, I love that we have a relationship. You're serving me. There's a difference, though, between serving in a ministry and a call to a life of ministry. And for some, God's actually starting to pull on your heartstrings and he's starting to say, I'm calling you to a life of ministry. And with that it's very, very rarely about ministering at conferences. Probably 2% of people actually do that. No, it's often more of packing up family, seeing how much stuff you can fit in X amount of suitcases, When I went to Argentina, I was put in a radio room off the top corner of the church, and it was enough for one bed and one closet, and it was a luxury to everything else that they had there, because I had a little portable AC in my room. I get to taste what global missionaries, not all of them, but some, when I'd grab my little backpack and I'd head down to the restroom in the main foyer of the church, and you'd flip the light on when you did, the cockroaches would just scatter. And even then, I was engaged to Jackie, and my heart was aching, and she wasn't there. And, and I just think through these things when I read about the commitment of ministry, of people who have said, God, you called me in every ministry, no matter what it is, there is a sacrifice. There is something that there are days when you have tears and heartache and you go, am I doing, making a difference? I miss what I know. I, oh, I wonder if I could do something different and it would be, it would be easier than this. But thank God that there are some men and women that responded to the call. And because of that, the mission is being moved all over the world. And I wonder which man or woman that's watching online today or here today sitting in these pews is going, God's starting to deal with me. God's starting to deal with me and he's starting... And he's starting to work in my heart. And he's starting to work in my mind. And he's starting to see these first words of the cross. They make me want to forgive. They make me want to give. And like his sacrifice, sometimes just step into my own area of calling and gifting and anointing. But we have this promise from God. And that's why he says in Matthew 19, he says, yeah, it's a sacrifice, but you will receive A hundred times as much in return, and you will inherit eternal life. But here's the thing that's not listed there. Not only you, but the people to whom you minister will also inherit eternal life. When someone says, I'm willing to sacrifice. As you stand to your feet today. Well, you know, some of you are going to begin to find a place to pray and and you're going to begin to think about, oh, God, what can I give to this Move the Mission offering? You know you're not maybe called to go to another country or to serve in a full-time ministry position or give yourself to a life of ministry or whatever. But you say, you know, I want to be a part of that and I'm going to give more than I've ever given before because I want to further that mission. For others of you, maybe you're going to find a place and say, my God, I I feel terrible, Lord. Help me. I feel horrible about the fact that I've been holding on to this bitterness, and I read this story, and I hear about what you did. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, and, and it's time to release yourself from this prison of hate and bitterness. And for others, you're about to find a place at an altar, and you're about to lay yourself on that altar and say, God... I might only be 12, 14, 15, 18. I might be 58, 68. Uh, Lord, whatever it, Lord, wh- wh- where, wh- what are you calling me to do? God, I know that there's things about ministry that scares me, and there's unknown, and I don't maybe know how to prepare, and I don't know what's next, and oh man, he said these things, and that would be hard, And but but Lord, there's something in me that I'm I'm clinging to this word that you said. That you said, you know what, I'm going to get a hundred times and that. I'm going to have eternal life. Other people are going to have eternal life. So God, whatever it is... I didn't know where I was going to end, up. I felt the call to be a pastor. But I remember walking around Parkway, Apostolic Church in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Big old church, just walking, just walking in the dark. You'd have the lights coming in from the side windows. And, and every day I would just make it a point to be there. And I'd just walk around, and I was like, God, I feel you calling me. But I, I'm, I'm just sitting here. What am I supposed to be doing with this call? Here's where I am. I feel like you're calling me to do something. I will do anything you want me to do, but you got to tell me. If you want me to go to Zimbabwe, if you want me to go to Africa, Africa, Nigeria, if you want me to go up the road to a different church, if you want me to evangelize, work in youth, work in children's ministry, just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. And I just would just pray and I would just ask God. And, and then little by little, He would start to open doors and He'd start to do things. And along the way, I have been so blessed, but I also have been so hurt at times too. Ministry is so difficult at times. There's a cost to the call. But when God puts the burden on like he's doing with some of you as you start to feel the tears and the weight of that burden... There is something that you go, God, this world's not my home and I want to give every ounce of my being and my energy to try to fulfill what you have called me to do so that someone will be in heaven as a result of you flowing through me, God. And for some of you, that might be someone right here in Liberty. Might be a different state. It might be a global missionary. You might at one point do exactly what I'm talking about as you take your family and pack up your stuff, and you look at parents who are weeping and crying, and you give them a big hug, and you say, guys, you raised me for such a time as this. I know this is hard. I know this is difficult, but this is what you invested in me for. And then you watch the taillights as they drive away and both parties are crying, but you're stepping into the divine calling where only eternity will be able to measure the success of your response to the call. So yes, I wanna be a part of giving to move the mission. I wanna be a part of moving the mission myself. I wanna do whatever I'm called to do, God. But no matter what, don't let me just sit on a pew and do nothing. So church, I invite you in your response, what God's calling you to do to begin to respond today, if it's giving, if it's forgiving, if it's serving, if it's stepping into ministry, if it's responding to that call that God is placing in your mind and in your heart right now. Oh God, just help me to do whatever I need to do to move that mission forward. God, do whatever I need to do to move that mission forward, no matter the sacrifice, no matter how tough, how uncomfortable. God, I want to move the mission forward god i want to do whatever I need to do god In Jesus name